The best kinds of bad movies are usually made by ambitious people trying to make a great film and failing spectacularly. It often feels cruel to mock films made under these circumstances, but I was raised on Mystery Science Theater 3000 and can't stop myself. Zardoz was produced by creative, talented people striving to present a psychedelic allegory for the human condition. It's very much a product of its era. It's difficult to imagine Zardoz getting uh, the green light at any other moment than the auteur-driven 1970s, and also in the wake of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Despite the fact that Zardoz is usually brought up in the context of cinematic dumpster fires, I will do my best to approach it on its own terms. Now, this doesn't mean that I'm going to wallpaper over Zardoz's many, many shortcomings. I'm also not going to be a contrarian who insists that Zardoz is some kind of secret masterpiece. This movie's bad. My conclusion is that this movie's bad. That being conceded, Zardoz isn't lazy. It isn't Robot Monster or The Killer Shrews or some of the other sloppy bad movies that I have covered on this show. It stepped up to the plate and swung the bat as hard as it could, and whiffed so hard that it accidentally hit itself in the crotch somehow. There are things to learn and things to unpack for moments like this. My name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. Joining me on this episode is Cheryl, who has just finished watching Zardoz for the very first time. Cheryl is dazed and stunned. I, I told you that it was going to be a lot, but that didn't adequately prepare you for Zardoz, which is a lot. Just the opening of this movie alone. God. I told you to steal yourself because we just got started. You're going to burn out if you just keep reacting the way that you are. He's not wrong, I did. I'd say the main reason that you picked Zardoz is because of your personal fondness for Sean Connery. Oh, 1,000%. Sean Connery was my adopted grandfather. I decided, like, early on that it's like, no, that man. That man's amazing. And, and you've seen most of his other classics, his, his James Bond movies, Highlander, you know, Red October, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. The Rock! This is the one that was left. And I do know that when you were a teenager, you decided that if you ever got famous to the point where they made a biopic about you, you wanted to be played by Sean Connery. Oh, yeah. To the point that anybody that I met in life that like I got close to, I made them swear that if I was going to be in a movie that they had about themselves, that they would cast Sean Connery as me. And it didn't matter what age you were supposed to be. If you were like four years old, Sean Connery would just be sitting there in a princess dress being, I'm Charles. Well, that or like it would be his voice, like with like a little girl. Either works. I mean, obviously you have to leave room for the artists to do their work. You just saw Zardos for the very first time, but this is my second viewing of it. The first time I saw it was at the Luna Theater in Lowell, Massachusetts. Hopefully it will still be open when the pandemic finally passes over. However, they had this running feature called Weirdo Wednesdays, where you would come in and they would show a cult movie and the admission was free, but they wouldn't tell you what you were going to watch until it was too late. <laughs> and the week I went, it was Zardoz. <laughs> Which I knew of it because of his reputation, but that was the first time. So I saw this one on the big screen. Were you okay to drive afterwards? Because I feel loopy and I just moved from the couch to the table. Becky was driving, so I was okay. <laughs> so before we go any further, let's break down the plot as best as I can. There's, there's a lot open to interpretation here. But after two viewings and consulting various synopses available online... Zardoz is set in a post-apocalyptic future year of 2293. The first person we see is the floating head. The floating head was enough for you. Uh, of, our, 
Arthur Frayne, who who warned you that he is a puppet master who manipulates the various characters in the film. This scene was shot at the last minute at the insistence of the studio, who was afraid that Zardoz was incomprehensible and that this prologue would help. It looks like the head is just going like palm style across a black screen. It's amazing. In this dystopian future, the human population is divided into two main groups. The first would be Eternals. These are immortal beings living a decadently luxurious yet aimless existence on a country estate called the Vortex. Now, everyone else outside of the Vortex are called the Brutals. These are just the teeming masses of undesirable proles who are mostly in the way. However, later on, uh, the Eternals need these individuals to farm food for them. More on that later. Now, a subset of the Brutals are the Exterminators. Now, these people maintain order by terrorizing the serfs and also just winnowing the population. Although later on, they're the ones who force the uh, rest of the Brutals into farming. They take orders from a flying stone head called Zardoz. <laughs> the very first scene in this film, because none of what I just told you is explicitly stated. In the opening scene, Zardoz, the flying stone head with a permanent angry grimace, approaches the exterminators and gives them a speech about how the gun is good and the penis is evil and then vomits rifles at them. No further context is provided. Once again, I was like, Cheryl, you need to taper it down because you are not going to be, this is just going to keep going. This leads me to point out that Zardoz's laudable goal of trying not to info-dump or spoon-feed exposition to its audience and its shortcomings when it comes to getting its audience acclimated to its world and its storytelling stakes will be discussed in the thematic portion of this episode. <laughs> now, one of the exterminators, Zed, hides aboard uh, Zardoz, killing its eternal pilot creator, the previously mentioned Arthur Frayne, in the process. He arrives at the Vortex, meeting Eternals Consuela and May. They overwhelm him with their psychic abilities and force him to work as a menial laborer. Uh, Consuela wants Zed destroyed, but May and an Eternal named Friend consider him worthy of scientific study. Oh, I actually, can I stop you with a question? Since you've seen this movie twice and you seem to be the expert, what was up with the plastic wrap people in the head? Superfluous nudity. Another thing we'll be discussing later on. Alright, now most of the exposition here, because despite the fact that it is trying not to spoon feed you anything, there are still a lot of info dumps. Friend is basically the source of this. Zed learns that the Eternals are overseen and protected from death by an artificial intelligence known as the Tabernacle. This has resulted in eternal civilization gradually festering into lazy corruption. The pointlessness of procreation has rendered men impotent and uh, meditation has supplanted sleep. Uh, the lack of goals or struggle has driven some Eternals to uh, Catatonia, a social group known as Apathetics. Oh my god! I found one of the links to the Lord of the Rings! Meditation! The elves meditate instead of sleeping. Oh yeah, that's one thing. Yeah, the apathetics are introduced to us because uh, Zed tries to sexually assault one of them and is off-put by the fact that she is not reacting to him whatsoever. Our hero, everybody. Yay! The hero we all deserve. He is the hero we all deserve. Most Eternals spend their listless days baking special green bread or curating humanity's stores of knowledge. 
Eternal law is governed by complex, arbitrary social rules whose violators are punished by artificial aging. The worst criminals are dubbed renegades and are aged to the point of senility. When an eternal dies, usually due to an accident, they are reborn into a healthy new body created by the tabernacle. The Eternal's eventual doom lies in underestimating how intelligent Zed is. It turns out that he was genetically engineered by Arthur Frayne to seek out the Vortex and presumably through the virtues of his noble savage demeanor, spur the Eternals out of their cultural stagnation. However, unbeknownst to Frayne, this is at the beset of the tabernacle itself. I have another question. Yes? Do you remember when Fire and Ice came out? When we did the Fire and Ice episode? Yeah. yeah. Do you think that the two were, in, like, one was inspired by the other? We've got the noble savage again. Uh, not directly, but they're probably ripping off the same people, Lord of the Rings, for one thing. Lots of butts, too. Quite a few butts. Examination of Zed's memories for May finds Frayne uh, ex- encouraging Zed to learn how to read. This brings Zed to a library and a copy of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Zed realizes that Zardoz is a uh, construct of the book's title, revealing that Zardoz is really a human manipulation rather than a deity. Now this scene, where Zed finds this out, is framed as a mind-blowing revelation, because Zardoz, like the Wizard of Oz, is a giant-headed deception. Eh? You get it? You get it? (laughs) Whoa, man. All right. Consuela convinces most of the Eternals to kill Zed, an age friend. Okay, this character is solely called Friend, so he can make an old friend pun after he is aged. Then only half his face is aged. This man is playing the long game. Zed, however, is able to escape their influence, partially due to the help of the apathetics, because his glistening man sweat has awakened <laughs> urges in them. It was the most uncomfortable, like, I don't know, is it an orgy if it's just people licking each other? Well, one of them licks his sweat, and then they kiss each other so they can taste his sweat, and then they lick his sweat off each other's fingers. Yeah, and then they all start, like, grabbing towards him, and then he eats a leaf. Yeah, and then when the rest of the Eternals approach him, they're all just, like, banging each other on top of statues, going like, he taught us how to feel again. And also, we killed that guy, but it wasn't him. Zed is approached by May, who offers to subject him to a process where they will absorb all eternal knowledge in exchange for impregnating her and all her followers, which sets up a sequence where a bunch of people are, like, reciting poetry and classical opera while relevant imagery is projected onto their naked bodies. I actually really dug that scene. It reminded me of a lot of, like, early Melissa Etzridge music videos. It is framed very well. I will talk about how the cinematography often interferes with the film, but in some cases, it it does accomplish what it's setting out to do. Afterwards, Zed brings in his fellow exterminators to kill the Eternals, most of whom welcome death as an end to their listless tedium. May and her followers escape, fated to bear their children as enlightened mortals among the Brutals. Now, Consuela, the woman who's been trying to kill Zed for most of the movie, she's about to stab him in the back in one scene, and then just instantly falls in love with him. Like, he snaps his fingers, almost. Yeah, like, she goes to stab him, she touches his back with a knife, and he's like, no, I don't think you will. And she's like, I loved you, and I became you. So anyways, (laughs) Zed and Consuelo run off to live in the giant Zardoz head. 
The final sequence in Zardoz is completely without dialogue. Consuela and Zed are living in the remnants of the Zardoz head as husband and wife. She gives birth to a baby boy. Clad in green suits, the couple grow old as the child matures. After the boy becomes a young man and sets out on his own, his parents decompose into skeletons and then vanish. The last thing we see is a series of handprints and Zed's revolver. And that's the film, as best as I can recap it. He's making it make a lot more sense than actually watching it, mates. I will be getting back to that. Right, for the production of this film, writer-director John Borman wrote Zardoz after his goal of adapting the Lord of the Rings trilogy was shot down by studio executives for, the, for cost reasons. Still wishing to depict a strange new world and use some of his Middle-earth research to make something, he co-wrote a script influenced by Frank Elbaum, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, as I mentioned already, T.S. Eliot, who's directly quoted in this film, and Arthurian lore. He wished to focus on uh, the psychological interiority of science fiction rather than outer space spectacle. And I think, in addition to quoting T.S. Eliot, he's using that sort of wasteland type thing of, hey, I'll throw a, out a bunch of references in forms of illusion, and then people will think I'm smart because I did that. See also James Joyce and Bob Dylan. Oh, burn. <laughs> You know, he did make a dig at it, too. I was wondering why they randomly talked about, like, you didn't go into space? And they're like, oh, we did. But it was boring, so we came back. <laughs> uh, Warner Brothers, who had worked with Borman on most of his prior films, had no interest in the Zardoz script. 20th Century Fox, looking to poach Borman because he was one of the most acclaimed directors of the period, which is saying something, this is 1974, expressed interest in working with him on anything. Uh, the Fox liaison who uh, sent to Borman found the script confusing, but he gave approval based on Borman's reputation, past success, and just browbeating. Borman just sort of just like squeezed him into into, give, into approving the film. But do it though. Burt Reynolds was cast as Zed because he had already worked with Borman on Deliverance, uh, one of his biggest films, and it does have a lasting reach into modern pop culture. Although generally, like say Psycho and a couple other films, people only really know it for that one scene. Ding 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 ding. That's the one. Reynolds had to pull out due to illness, and they struggled to find a replacement. Borman contacted Richard Harris, but never heard back. <laughs> Sean Connery was the third choice, who was set to be in the film a week before a shooting was to begin. Connery was looking to redefine his screen persona after leaving the James Bond franchise. Also, he had a hard time finding work after 1971's Diamonds Are Forever and might have been willing to take anything. Uh, this makes me think of uh, Sean Connery and his interesting casting choices. For example, when they finally did make the Lord of the Rings trilogy, he was on the shortlist for Gandalf and said no because he didn't understand the script. <laughs> also, when they made The Matrix, he was offered Morpheus and turned that down because he didn't understand the script. That's why he got a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, right? He's like, I'm not turning anything else down! Yeah, because Lord of the Rings and The Matrix were big hits, and he didn't understand the script for The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, so he figured that must be on to something. Oh, and he had such a bad time in that film, it ended up being his last one. But he understood the script for Zardoz. Did he, though? Okay, he needed the money. All right, uh, Zardoz was shot in Ireland, uh, based out of uh, Ardmore Studios in uh, Brake uh, County, Wicklow. A lot of the outdoor scenes were shot, like, right next to Borman's house. Um, it was very pretty. Yeah, the Irish countryside is known for its uh, scenic beauty. Very, very green. Local artisans made the costumes based on designs by Borman's wife, Christelle Cruz. 
The Eternals costumes were intended to reflect desire for utility and comfort rather than fashion choice. And apparently, utility and comfort means not wearing much of anything. Yeah, it's just like weird crocheted vests, and then they put their shirts on there. You know that thing like when you're a girl and like you get out of the shower and you wrap the towel around your head? It's not really a look. I read somewhere that the that the headdresses were supposed to be modeled after like Nefertiti and various Egyptian royalty of ancient times. I don't really see it. I don't either. It looks like you just put your t-shirt on your head. On the other hand, yeah, these are incredibly Caucasian Irish people, so Egyptian goddesses aren't really on the menu today. Yeah, I suppose that's fair. That could be why I'm like, I don't, I don't see it. All right, the most interesting sartorial choice, and the first thing you will see if you Google Zardoz, is Connery's <laughs> uniform, where he is wearing, like, this red Speedo diaper and two gun belts that are also suspenders, and then pirate boots that go way up past his knees. Yeah, those are, like, higher-than-pretty women's boots. Like, they're, like, they're at groin level. He also has a ponytail and some big, thick mutton chops. <laughs> Locals were used as extras. Foreman felt that they looked outdoorsy and found them very pleasant on a personal level. However, since these were Irish Catholics, he did have to twist a lot of arms in order to get women to take their tops off. Not literally. No, I didn't think literally, but I'm just like, wow, you got Catholic women to do that? Well, well, Borman's a charmer, and the fact that he was able to will this film into existence to begin with. He got a major studio to be like, yeah, Zardoz, let's make this. None other than Stanley Kubrick was an uncredited technical advisor on this film, which I think explains a lot. Uh, the Irish government interfered with Zardoz's uh, production in a, in a couple of ways. For example, they wouldn't let the crew import prop guns because of recent terrorist attacks. I mean, it's Ireland, yeah. Yeah, the, the troubles were still ongoing. Cinematographer Jeffrey Unsworth wanted an impressionistic atmosphere in the film. So he shot with his lenses wide open, uh, with lots of fog filters on them, and he had ample smoke uh, machines running at full blast at every moment. This resulted in footage that couldn't be reproduced with clarity. Uh, a lot of them were, you, you couldn't actually see what was going on, it was just angry Sean Connery uh, voice coming out of blurs. <laughs> oh no! So they were able to eventually hack it into a film they could make copies of and, you know, have it so you could actually see it, although this film does look very washed out and blurry. The studio forbid cinematographers from using Unsworth's technique in all late, uh, future productions. <laughs> the, the one that you can't see anything with? Yeah. What a surprise! Now, for the bit where the camera moves into the stone mouth of Zardoz, it was placed at the mouth, tracked backwards, and then the shot was reversed in the editing room. And there are a couple of other shots of people going backwards, most specifically in the one where <laughs> Zardoz rewinds time in order to escape from the angry mob. Oh, it was Zed. Uh, yeah, Zed, sorry. He's like, Dad, to my protective aura, and then people are, like, jumping up and backwards in a way, like fucking Muppets. It's amazing. The part where Zed and Consuela dissolve into skeletons, that had to be shot on three different shooting days. Uh, the first one, the film wound up getting damaged. The second set uh, had the negatives accidentally exposed. Connery and Rampling were very annoyed at this because the old age makeup they had to wear for those bits took forever to put on. Yeah, and you it's such a grim looking like picture as they get older. They're making like the most unhappy faces. It's the faces someone would make if they lived in a cave. Which they kind of were. For their whole lives. Alright, now let's talk about the cast of this film a little bit. Yay! Alright, first and foremost, Sean Connery. Woohoo! 
Connery was paid about $200,000, which is the budget price for a guy as famous as him, but also a fifth of this movie's budget. Connery drove himself to the set to save production costs, and he was paid half of what a hired driver would have gotten. This was at his own suggestion, because this film was made for almost no money, and they had to cut every corner they could get away with. For instance, instead of being put up at a hotel, Connery stayed at Borman's house, and he paid Borman's wife for room and board. Less gentlemanly. The copious sex scenes were one of the reasons Connery agreed to star in the film, and a number of female cast members complained that Connery spent more time manhandling them in the sex scenes than was strictly necessary for the point of filming. No. Yeah, that's gross. That's super gross. Rampling herself was an exception. She found Sean Connery very attractive and was eager to do the sex scenes, and she was very disappointed that it didn't take too long. Oh my. Connery was uncomfortable with wearing the bridal dress during the scene where he was sneaking away from the angry mob. He didn't really need, didn't even need to be there, but I was happy that it was. The next most famous person in this film is Charlotte Rampling, who plays Consuela. You recognized her, although you didn't know from what. I couldn't tell you specifically, no, but I've seen her in other things. She's consistently worked since this film. She's never a superstar, but you've probably seen her in a, cu- a couple of things. Uh, the Verdict, for example. She's going to be in uh, Villeneuve's upcoming Dune movie, so even though she's in her mid-70s, she's still working. That woman has a neck for days. Yeah, you were commenting on that neck right away. You were you were distracted from the diaper for a minute because of how rad her neck looked. Like, if I had seen a picture of this woman and I didn't know her neck was like that, I'd be like, that's Photoshop. Yeah, she was the first person to sign on, and when asked why she took this part afterwards, she described Zardoz as, It's poetry. It clearly states, love your body, love nature, and love what you come from. She's a bit of a hippie. Yeah, I mean, that's really sweet and beautiful. I think that uh, we must have watched a different movie than she was in, but, you know, sweet and beautiful. Well, when you're on set and doing the lines in front of the camera and not necessarily doing every scene in order and maybe only seeing the, the, the scenes that you yourself are in, you can get a very different impression from what winds up appearing on the screen. Most people in bad movies aren't aware that they're in a bad movie. Until it's over and they're like, yee. Or they double down. Yeah, or they could double down. All right, uh, the next most important character is Sarah Kestelman as May. She doesn't have much of a resume, some TV bits, uh, when they have the little photos of everyone on, uh, in the cast and crew under the uh, little Amazon headline where we rented this film. Kestelman is the only one where the photo is just a shot of her in Zardoz. <laughs> yeah. She's okay in this. She's supposed to give, like, emotionally distant line readings because, you know, most of the Eternals are jaded and just done with living life, and you know, she's okay with that. Yep. She also has a lot of freckles, and they're really pretty. Her, her freckles are pretty. All right, next up, Niall Buggy as Arthur Frayne and Zardoz. You are delighted by this man, because he's just, <laughs> he's not in this film for very much, but every time he shows up, he's just like, I'm a magician, the sleight of hand where you are being manipulated. <laughs> You're introduced to this guy from a distance, and it slowly zooms in, and you find out that his goatee and his mustache is drawn on. I particularly like the bit at the end where he's like, I programmed you to liberate the Vortex, Zed. And then Zed is like, yeah, but the Vortex manipulated you into manipulating me. And he's like, oh, that's delightful. He's like a walking hedonism bot. He really is. It's amazing. He's like, I have one last trick for you. And he's just holding a bird and then he gets shot. And you're like, well, what is the trick? (laughs) And then finally, uh, the uh, last person I want to talk about is John Alderton as friend. Yeah, 
he's he epitomizes the film itself because he's not nearly as clever as he seems to think he is. And also, you're like super confused, like most of the time. Like you understand his purpose to a degree, but you're like, why is half of his face old? And he's supposed to be like this Oscar Wilde, just walking around droll persona. And he's just like, oh, look at the silly little man as Sean Connery is standing here. And, you know, the woman is just groping his bulging chest hair. Was he, though? Was he supposed to be Oscar Wilde? I think he's supposed to be an, like an Oscar Wilde-esque figure. He's supposed to be the guy who's just, you know, quipping at you. Except none of his quips are funny. I thought he was just the shitty dude that threw bread at people out of a wagon. Uh, he could be more than one thing. <laughs> All right, the music of this film. All aspects of the film were under Borman's control, including the music. He hired uh, David Monroe <laughs> to compose the score, uh, encouraging him to use medieval instruments such as notch flutes, gemshorns, and antique bells. I also picked up a little hurdy-gurdy. I don't know what a hurdy-gurdy is, but it sounds delightful. It's kind of a, a lute that you can turn with a crank while you're playing it. Oh, I've seen that in museums! And you definitely recognize uh, the, what, what one sounds like. Is he the reason that there was, like, all that vocalizing in the movie? Yes, all that vocalizing, which is supposed to be, like, modeled after Gregorian chanting. Was it? It was supposed to. I don't think that's how it came off. It did not. It came off as, like, a bunch of people gargling, but, like, together. Also frequently used is the second movement of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. It's seated throughout the film, but it shows up very prominently when the Eternals are wiped away, and then we get, like, the dissolved montage of Consuela and Zed raising their son and then turning into skeletons together. I love that movement. It is a very beloved uh, movement in the history of classical music for a reason. It's bone simple, but I, I think it's very chilling, and it is appropriated for this film to lend it gravitas that it does not deserve. I, I wouldn't be even be able to tell you if it really was there, because I was so focused with the old makeup. All right, the reception of this film. Uh, its budget was $1.57 million. It barely made its budget back. It was a financial disappointment. Borman blames the tepid returns on this film on the budget being too small for him to properly realize his true vision. Yeah, because more was what that movie was lacking. It was, it was totally needed more. The reviews of this film were mostly not great, but uh, the contemporary ones were more kind than you would assume. I think a lot of people were still in the awe of uh, Borman, who was supposed to be like one of the great film titans of his era, and perhaps were being a bit kinder to this film than they would have otherwise. Uh, Roger Ebert called it a genuinely quirky movie, a trip into a future that seems ruled by perpetually stone set decorators. <laughs> He calls the film incredibly self-indulgent, which is fair. Yeah. Most people accuse the film of being pretentious, which, no. <laughs> I was gonna say, like, I feel like I can't call it preachy, because it feels like it's preachy, but I have no idea what it was preaching. My favorite soundbite came from Ian Christie, who wrote, If this is intellectual thinking, then Donald Duck deserves the Nobel Prize. Who does Donald Duck? Yes, that is very mean, to Donald Duck. This film has gained quite the cult rap. No surprise. If you're looking at a list of, like, fucked up weirdness for your bad movie night, it is usually close to the top of the list. It's right up there with Troll 2 or The Room or various other things you could apply to that list. Especially if you're an aficionado of Sean Connery, just as a stage persona. So I'm buying this movie. Zardoz is directly referenced in an episode of Community. It is Abed's favorite film. 
It also is the springboard for a first season episode of Rick and Morty. So Dan Harmon is just into Zardoz. Also, a uh, Swedish melodic death metal group called Brundle Haze recorded a 2018 tribute album entitled Zardoz, which is, once again, melodic death metal instrumentals intercut with dialogue from the film. That sounds like that would be really cool, especially like with like a laser show in a planetarium. I mean, the film itself is kind of a laser show at a planetarium, particularly the scene where Zed destroys the tabernacle and he's just sort of going through a Bruce Lee Hall of Mirrors. Yeah, like, is he in the crystal? Is he just meditating? Is that second-level meditation? Well, the tabernacle just goes, you have penetrated me, which (laughs) that caused you to giggle for, like, five uninterrupted minutes. And (laughs) up until then, you were just stone-faced overwhelmed for a good 20 minutes. Because before that, I was like, I was taking it all in, but then it was just, I was overstimulated. It was too much. But then I was like, could you imagine if somebody said that to someone in the bedroom in that voice? I was debating in my head, has Cheryl become acclimated to the film or is she just numb? (laughs) All right, now let's talk about the the important thematic subtext of Zardoz. Do you need a minute? (laughs) I can pause. Okay, now if there's one thing I want to talk about when it comes to Zardoz, it is instances where one's ambition doesn't quite match one's reach. Yeah. (laughs) Because there is a good movie hiding in Zardoz somewhere. A lot of contemporary films like, say, Logan's Run, Planet of the Apes, Rollerball, you mentioned Time Bandits. Yeah, Time Bandits. And I I absolutely see the Planet of the Apes now that you mention it. Yeah, the premises for those films are just as silly as Zardoz, possibly more so for a couple of them. I think the difference lies mostly in execution. And the Barbarella vibes. Oh, yes. You asked me if Zardoz is like a, a, a spiritual cousin to Barbarella, which I can sort of understand how other people could get there, but I don't think so because Barbarella knows exactly what it is. It is intentionally campy. Zardoz thinks that it's some kind of transcended, genre-hopping, mind-melting masterwork of the human condition and <laughs> is trying so hard to be that, but it's not. I feel like you could be in, like, a box set, though. Like, those two DVDs together, sort of like how they always put, like, the Dark Crystal with the Labyrinth. I'm guessing that if you're into Zardoz, you probably like Barbarella, too. You would be wrong. I really want to like Barbarella, but that movie's a lot. And Zardoz isn't. I got through Zardoz in one sitting. I had to break Barbarella down into four viewings. Well, you get back to the pitfalls of not spoon-feeding exposition to one's audience. (laughs) Now, a lot of films fall into the trap where they don't trust their audience and they just give you all of this expository information that might not be directly relevant to the plot, where they they place world building above characterization. The first thing that comes to mind is the Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern movie, where like the opening 10 minutes is just a guy lecturing you about Green Lantern lore. I never saw that one, but it made me like it's like Krillin, right? DBZ? I, I, I guess so. It makes me think of a quote by uh, the director, Billy Wilder. Let the audience figure it out on their own and they will love you for it. I'm paraphrasing. That's basically it. Zardoz is trying to do this, but it it undercuts itself through murky transitions, overly surreal imagery, uh, and creative decisions made for artsy reasons that don't necessarily lend themselves to storytelling. Zardoz has a lot of neither fish nor fowl moments where if it leaned harder into the dream logic aspects of it, people might start talking about it 
regarded as a cult classic more in like, say, an Alejandro Jodorowsky way uh, instead of this sloppy mess that it is. Sean Connery in a red diaper way. Yeah. And... To be honest, there still is quite a bit of spoon feeding in this film. This film grinds to a halt so friend can tell you what the renegades are. Act 2 in general is very draggy. It, it, it just keeps going and it just keeps giving you more facets while like Sean Connery is offering you potatoes. You're like, I want more stone heads. Give me more flying Zardoz heads. And once again, Zardoz is trying to be about something. I believe that people believe that. Yeah, for example, the post-apocalyptic future in Zardoz is a commentary on class hierarchy. You know, after the fall of the Roman Empire, Europe descended into feudalism, where, you know, a small handful of chieftains who controlled most of the wealth ruled over everyone else in abject serfdom. And I do think that Zardoz is also a commentary on how uh, struggle builds character, that humans are wired to find problems in the world because of evolutionary biology, and we are never satisfied with anything. We clawed our way to the top of the food chain by just wanting more and more, and we need a hill to conquer, and we're not happy if we don't have something to do. You know, you look at anyone who's on disability and stuck at the house or, you know, in COVID quarantine, and start clawing our hair out because there's no structure anymore. And that made me feel something for those Eternals who have spent 300 years with no focused goal. Yeah, occupation and identity are critical for the um, uh, human contentment. And that's what the Eternals do not have. Even breaking boundaries into outer space was not enough for them. They got boring, so we came back. Another thing that it keeps talking about is the wealthy elite isolating themselves from the worst effects of civilization's collapse, which they probably caused. That feels particularly relevant in this day and age. Oh, really? Yeah, every news story I've read about how all these rich people are flocking to New Zealand because if or when climate change hits the fan and institutions start breaking down in rapid uh, cases, New Zealand is seen to be as one of those oases because, you know, it's small, it's isolated, it has a stable population that's not too big. And it's happened to the point where New Zealand has started restricting rich people buying real estate there. It also made me think of an interview with the futurist Douglas Rushkoff, who was invited by several billionaires to give a seminar on what the future is like. And he thought he was going to be talking about technology and stuff. But they were asking, asking questions like, okay, I started building a climate change bunker to hide myself in when everything goes down and I need security forces to guard it. But if civilization collapses to the point where money becomes meaningless, how do I compel these people to uh, continue guarding me? Which is a hell of a question to be asked. And he's just like, if I can't pay them and uh, I mean, I can't quite give them food because what's to stop them from taking their guns and stealing the food from me and leaving me high and dry? Do you think it's feasible to put like shock collars on them? That is grim. Yes, it is. And I thought of that while watching Zardoz. And uh, another aspect of, you know, the um, Eternals using religion in order to manipulate the exterminators into killing the excess population made me think of, you know, the philosophy of Thomas Malthus, who believed that overpopulation, which was a big concern amongst people in the 60s and 70s, would eventually lead to uh, resource depletion to the point where human civilization would itself collapse. And Malthus's proposed solution was to take the excess poor, who, because they are poor, they are lazy and parasitical, and just systematically exterminate them. 
you know, that uh, quote in uh, Christmas Carol where Scrooge says, if the poor would rather die, they better do it and decrease the surplus population is a very Malthusian quote. People often tie Malthus to Thanos in the recent Avengers films who decide to eliminate half the population for conservation reasons. With magic, when he could just make all of the supplies double the size. Well, Malthus... His theories fall apart when you look at certain facts, for example, while resource depletion is a big deal in the modern day and age, it isn't because there are too many mouths. It's possible for the world to sustain a population of 10 billion. The The problem is that the top 1% consume far more resources than they should. And Malthus, combined with uh, the evolutionary theories of uh, Charles Darwin, led to eugenics and eventually Nazism. And the resurgence of Malthus in recent years, due to a certain recently ousted president, among other things galvanizing it, has led to the eco-fascist movement. So whenever I hear a libertarian talk about the needs for population control later on, it makes me think of Zardoz. I think that's more thought than Zardoz has gotten in a long time. Well, the last thing I want to talk about is the superfluous nudity in this film. There's a lot. It's the 70s. Once again, Borman thought that this is very necessary because he had to struggle quite a bit to get those Irish Catholic women to show their boobies on the screen and to have various naked Irish women to sort of press their butts against the glass in the background <laughs> of the scene. Yeah, yeah, Cheryl looked at it and was like, are the naked people just going to be just, like, chilling there the whole time? How much were they paid for that? Yeah, like, I mean, it's not like it's hard work, but, I mean, they probably were cold. Like, that's hard. Yeah, and it made me think, well, like, was the sexuality there because Borman was trying to be, like, transgressive? Or was it there because he thought that, that the sex in the film would be a selling point? I think it was supposed to be, like, we're numb to it, so you should be numb to it. Don't be shocked. Another thing that made me think of was a conversation with a friend of mine where he had watched a bunch of new Hollywood movies, and she asked me, "Is like, there's a lot more nudity in this than in movies that came before and after. Why is that? And I don't have like a firm answer for that, but I do think that part of it is that after the Hayes Code is finally rescinded and replaced with, you know, the current rating system, which is still restrictive, but still, you know, more creative freedom. There might have been a certain joy in directors being like, the floodgates are open. We can show <laughs> boobies again. All of the butts. And then in the 1980s, when Steven Spielberg suggested the PG-13 rating to have something between PG and R in order to, you know, market it to teenagers, eventually the PG-13 became the most marketable film rating. And the R rating was considered a commercial kiss of death for almost every major film release. And eventually, film studios realized that you can make your films extremely violent and still receive a PG-13, but if you saw the briefest hint of a nipple, that's an instant R, because we live in a puritanical society in the United States, and that's just how it goes. Gunfights are more permissible than nipples. <laughs> and honestly, I'm going to say about Zardoz, like with the excessive nudity, if I had seen that movie when I was much younger, I probably wouldn't have had any of like the body image issues that I had as a teenager. Yeah, because most of these people are pretty cute, but they're not like supermodel cute. They look like people. Yeah, like you can easily, if you happen to have very Irish heritage, you can easily see yourself in this movie and be like, oh, but that's pretty. Oh, cool. That's normal. Yeah, that's that's basically all I have to say about the superfluous nudity. I'm not sure why it's there. Threw out a couple of theories. That's all I got. 
And uh, that's the entirety of my notes for Zardoz. Is there anything about Zardoz that we haven't talked about that you would like to bring up? Or are you still recovering from this? Because once again, you have just finished seeing it for the first time. (laughs) Um, I mean, this movie was definitely a lot. I guess the one thing that we haven't brought up, at least not enough, is the fact that the big stone head spent like a solid minute crossing the screen while a woman was like making this like very beautiful like melodic kind of thing she was doing this like soprano enya thing while the while the angry stone head was just like (laughs) it looks like like a like a gresham what are those the misery masks what are they like um you have like the angry the happy the dead the servant Okay, while I'm driving home, the official name for those is going to come across to me, but I'm totally blanking right now. Right? Ugh. But it looks sort of like that, but with extra teeth. So many teeth. So if that is it, uh, I believe we can close the book on Zardoz. Thank you for listening. Join us again for a movie that is probably more approachable than Zardoz. (laughs)